Boston College School of Theology and Ministry is committed to the intersection between theology, culture, and contemporary questions, preparing leaders who are equipped to serve the church and the world through diverse career paths. Generous financial aid is available. Learn more at bc.edu stm. and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. I am so excited to be with you, Ashley, and really thrilled about this week's show. Oh yeah, we got a great one coming for you. We are talking with Father Mike Schmitz, who probably doesn't need an introduction. (laughs) But we're going to give you one anyway. Uh, He is the chaplain for the Newman Center at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and he's the creator and host of the very popular The Bible in a Year podcast. Yes, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a, a podcast where it gives you short episodes that you can listen to every day, the readings, and then a little commentary by Father Mike, and it's really excellent. And as you said, this this podcast was and is a hit. It shot to the top of the Apple podcast charts when it came out, which is not usual for, for Catholic no. <laughs> podcasters, <laughs> as we can attest to. <laughs> no, it is not. And so you might have heard of Father Mike from that podcast or from his super popular YouTube videos, but as we mentioned, he is the chaplain for a Newman Center at a university, and so that's his day job. And so during this conversation, we get into what it's like, what campus ministry is like these days, what young people are looking for, what they're saying about the church, and also how he balances this kind of dual vocation of having this media ministry and also wanting to be a a pastor to these students on the ground. Yes. So in addition to being a chaplain and a podcast host, Father Mike is the brother to a beer brewer. (laughs) Yes, at, at the Roundhouse Brewery in Minnesota. And sadly, we could not locate any of this beer in New York. Um, that's what we would have liked to have, have had on tap for you today. Um, instead, though, we are going to be drinking a, a local IPA and thinking about, uh, we're also thinking about Sweet Martha's cookies from the Minnesota State Fair with Milligan's. <laughs> I've never had those. So now now I have a, another reason to go bucket, to Minnesota. Bucket of cookies and unlimited <laughs> milk. What more do you want? So stick around for our conversation with Father Mike, but first we have a few words about our sponsor this week. We all deserve to continue learning and have access to trustworthy information, and that's why Wondrium is my favorite educational platform. With audio and video courses, documentaries, tutorials, and more, the list of things we can learn on Wondrium is endless. Yeah, uh, we're loving right now Wondrium's brand new program, Hiking America's Great Trails. In every episode, the host guides you on one of America's most beautiful trails and shows you the must-see stops, explaining their rich history, their folklore, points out danger and things to watch out for, like spiders and snakes. (laughs) Yeah, I grew up uh, hiking on the Appalachian Trail, but I didn't know much about its history, the folklore, uh, the specifics about wildlife. So I loved getting that deeper dive into a trail that I love. Yeah. And Wondrium has thousands of hours of vetted information just like that that you won't get anywhere else, all from the brightest minds in their fields. Plus, the Wondrium app makes it so easy. Pick a program, watch or listen on any device, anytime, anywhere. So you can learn while you're driving, at the gym, cooking dinner, anywhere. Yeah. And we know that you'll love Wondrium as much as we do. And right now, we have a special limited time offer for our listeners. 
Sign up using our special URL to get 50% off your first three months of Wondrium. That's a great deal. It's half off from when you sign up from your first quarterly plan. Yes. So go now to wondrium.com slash Jesuitical to take advantage of this great offer. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of the show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And this week, we're very excited to bring back our friend and colleague, Colleen Dully, to talk about the latest deep dive from inside the Vatican on the Synod on Synodality. So welcome back, Colleen. Hello. It is easier to say Synod on Synodality than colleague, Colleen. Colleague, Colleen. <laughs> to talk about, on a podcast, to talk about podcasting. No, just kidding. Um, so Synod on Synodality, that is something uh, we've mentioned on this show before. It's something you've been reporting on for more than a year. Uh, but maybe if someone's coming into this totally fresh, what what is this thing going on at the Vatican uh, and all over the world? Sure. Um, I guess the easiest way to explain it is as a listening process. Maybe if you want to go a little bit deeper, a listening and discernment process. The idea is that the Vatican wants to hear from as many people as possible around the world in order to reflect on how the church can better build communion, participation, and mission. Those are the official three words, but basically how we can be a church that has listening built into its structures and that can be more welcoming, can be better at its central task of evangelizing. I guess the way I'm thinking about it is, you know, the church is used to having meetings and making decisions and doing that kind of thing, but they're uh, in, in sort of the decision-making process really does feel like it's going to kind of remain sort of uh, hierarchical in some ways, but they are certainly trying to expand the funnel of feedback. Is that mm -hmm. is that a good way of putting it? Yeah, I would say so. As for the decision making, you know, right now, at least it's still decisions made by bishops. Um, so we're seeing a lot of consultation of lay people. But then interestingly, they've like built in this what they're calling circularity or restitution into the process. So the feedback goes to bishops and then they filter that up. It gets synthesized a bunch of times. But then like before the next phase, before the continental phase, and we'll get into the phases in a second, I assume, they're going to send back their big synthesis to all the local churches and say, hey, get your lay people together in your diocese again and have them tell us if they feel like this actually re like reflects what they wanted to say and also so that they can get a sense of what other people in other churches around the world are saying. So all throughout that process, there's there's lay involvement. OK, so the church is not becoming a democracy, but it is becoming what Pope Francis has called for a listening church. Yeah, or at least stepping towards it. Right. Yeah. And so the first phase was the listening phase. So can you describe what that process was like and maybe some of the key takeaways from the past year of listening? So there are these listening sessions in uh, dioceses all around the world. Then they went up to the USCCB or whatever your local bishops conference is. Uh, and then they were passed along to the Vatican. We haven't gotten an official report yet. We're still waiting on that to come out. So there's no official word yet on what the whole world has said. But judging from what's come out in the local reports and also what I've heard from my sources is that the question of clericalism has come out front and center. So the need to, you know, be a church that sees lay people as protagonists in the church as like a main force for evangelization, which is what Vatican II said that we are as lay people, right? Um, and then also a lot about 
who feels included and excluded in the church. Um, they talk about women. They talk about LGBT people. They talk about the poor. Um, all these people who who haven't always felt welcome in the church and how that needs to change. Mm. One thing that you mentioned on your deep dive is that it seems like a lot of the responses have been more inward looking, like mm -hmm. what we are as a church as opposed to how we are supposed to live in the world as Catholics and as a church. So is that something that the Vatican's worried about and going to try to push people in a different direction? Or is that just what the Holy Spirit wants us to be talking about right now? It's a good question. I mean, you know, at least on paper, this is supposed to be about our evangelization mission, right? Which is also what the Pope's main focus is, what Jesus is, was asking his disciples to do. Um, I personally think it's kind of inevitable when you have one of these like big listening processes where you're asking people to get together and talk about the church for the first time, that they're going to talk about the inside of the church and the things that they haven't been given a chance to talk about before. So, yeah, that's been one of the big criticisms is that this has been too inward focused and should have been more outward focused. My personal take is this is just what people are going to talk about there's, when there's a lot of this up pent for the first up time. frustrations. Exactly. Like, and yeah. and they say that. Yeah. Well, also, like I vote, I, I kind of look at this like the name suggests that you're working on being a more synodal church. And to do that, you kind of have to take a an inward approach to figure out how to do that better. Right. Like the, this is the classic, like take the time to sharpen your saw. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, you're going to be spinning, <laughs> spinning your tires. Right. So I've, yeah, I've sure. not found that to be a, a super good criticism um, in your deep dive. Something I was really impressed by is sort of the breadth of sources that you're talking to. Um, you, you've got people from uh, all around the world, people at the Vatican that are really in charge of, of this process and also some people that are coming up with creative solutions on the ground to implement this. Um, what did you find that there was a, a running thread in talking to all these different levels of people? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that one thing that's remarkable about this is that we were able to get people who are pretty up high in the Vatican to talk about like the shortcomings. And one of the shortcomings is that like not everyone has been involved. It's been a really good geographic spread of participation in these listening sessions, but not so much. Uh, in terms of like percentage of Catholics involved, right? And part of that just comes down to the fact that synodality is a big question mark for a lot of people. People don't know what it means. It's a difficult word. So we got to talk to, within the Vatican, Sister Natalie Bacar, who is the first woman to serve as an undersecretary in this synod, which was formerly the Synod of Bishops. So, you know, for bishops only, um, but that is changing. We also spoke to Cardinal Mario Kreck, who is the general secretary of the synod, and then Thierry Bonaventura, who handles communications for it. So he's the one who's like faced every day with this challenge of communicating what synodality is to a church that's, you know, maybe never heard of it before. Um, and then we go to those folks around the world to see their creative takes on this. So like the show opens with this woman, Kathy in Georgia, who was called up by a couple of her friends who were concerned that the marginalized weren't going to be heard enough in the listening sessions. And so she took it upon herself to print out a gigantic picture of the Pope and paste it on her minivan. And it says, uh, Pope Francis wants to hear from you. And then it has her email address. And just driving around Atlanta, showing showing that email address off, she got so many responses. She set up listening sessions with a ton of people. So like that was really creative. We talked to this guy 
Deacon Luis Zuniga, who is in the border diocese of Brownsville, Texas, and with the diocese of Matamoros, Mexico, which is just across the river, they did like a joint cross-border listening session, which was really cool. And then we also talked with this uh, French nun who's living in Chad, who held a listening session with the kids in her parish, including like some orphans in her parish. And they were, they said all these things that really surprised her about like, hey, we want to be involved in the grown up stuff at church. You know, we want to come to funerals. We want to be able to speak and have people listen to us. I loved so, that section because, yeah. yeah, like Pope Francis had said from the beginning that he wants, you know, everyone to be involved, especially those on the margins. And you don't really think of kids as being on the margins, but they they traditionally have not had much voice. Yeah. How things are done we drown it out in cry rooms yeah. <laughs> in the back of church. Exactly. Exactly. And and these kids also felt like they were on the margins, you know? They were like, you guys don't listen to us. So now that we've done quite a bit of listening as a church, or we've tried to anyway, where we're at right now is sort of synthesizing all of this. Mm-hmm. And Pope Francis made a surprise announcement over the weekend. Yeah, uh, Pope Francis announced that he is going to add a second Roman phase. So the first is October 2023. The second is October 2024. And he's done this before with some synods that are of of importance, right? Yeah, he did this with the Synod on the Family in 2014 to 2015. And what we found out was basically it gave the difficult topics more time to mature. And in the end... I think the takeaway from the the people who were involved in it is that it made them able to discern better by having a little more time. And that's what Francis is hoping happens here. I mean, we don't know yet what the topics are that are going to come out in this global report, but judging from the national reports that have already come out, there's some hot topic stuff in there, right? Like this is the first time that the church is probably going to discuss women's ordination in earnest or talk about, um, like LGBT issues in in a pretty open way. And so, yeah, there's going to be hot topic issues. They're going to need time to cool down, be prayed on, be thought about. And I think that's what Francis is trying to get to here. Well, as you mentioned, this is going to be an ongoing story where we're going to we're certainly going to cover the topics that are coming up in the Synod um, in some detail over the next couple of years. I just like when I heard the year, the dates, I was like, October 2024. Like, yeah. wow, man, that's gonna that's a ways from now. Um, but listeners can hear all about that on Inside the Vatican podcast, especially on the latest deep dive that was really, really well done. Uh, Colleen, so shout out to you and the rest of the Thanks so much, team. yeah. And thanks for coming on our show to keep us up to speed on what's happening. Always glad to. Talk to y'all soon. Yep. And now stick around for our conversation with Father Mike Schmitz. Joining us from Duluth, Minnesota, is Father Mike Schmitz. Father Mike is the chaplain for Newman Catholic Campus Ministries at the University of Minnesota in Duluth and the creator and host of the Bible in a Year podcast. Welcome to Jesuitical, Father Mike. Thank you very much. I am really glad to be here. We are so excited to have you. So last year, you made some big news when when the Bible in a Year podcast 
skyrocketed to number one on the on the Apple Podcast uh, charts, and we want to get to that. But we want to start with your day job. You've been you've been a campus minister for for long, far longer than a podcaster. So can you start by just telling us about a day in the life on campus? For you. Yes, and thank you. I, thanks for asking that because nobody, nobody ever they think that's what I do is just read the Bible out loud into a microphone all day, which is only one of the things I do. Um, yeah, this is actually this is the start uh, of my 18th year on campus. Wow, um, which is crazy. I, I just think like I was again, I was ordained to be a, a parish priest, and my my bishop at the time, he's now with the Archbishop of Cincinnati, Archbishop Dennis Schner. He said, "I want you to be on campus. I think that'd be a good thing." Um, so great, and they never moved me. <laughs> when you first arrived, were you were you excited about the assignment, and did it just like fit right away, or were there some growing pains? I was so excited. In fact, it, it was my first assignment. So when I first got uh, ordained. The bishop said, okay, you're going to be at the cathedral and you're going to be at on campus at the Newman Center. And then I had the whole summer of planning this, like we're going to get ready to launch. And then right before school started, uh, a priest in our diocese unexpectedly died. And so they had to shift a bunch of guys around. So I was one of the shiftees. I got shifted up to a town called Hibbing, Minnesota, which is Bob Dylan's hometown huh. and also Kevin McHale's hometown and uh, next to Judy, Garley's, Judy Garland's hometown. Anyways, all the names, all those are the three famous people from Minnesota, not counting Prince. Anyways, so I got assigned up to Hibbing. And at first I was so like heartbroken because I, I, was, I was just getting a chance to be on campus. And then I realized really quickly when I got up to uh, Parrish, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I needed. Like I, I've spent my entire life in school. I spent my entire life, mm. you know, the last I don't know, nine, 10 years on a college campus. I needed to be able to have, okay, this is what real life looks like in many ways. You know, this yeah. is what family life looks like. This is, this is what people look like when they're not your exact age. <laughs> and though I spent two years up there and then they moved me back down to, to the University of Minnesota Duluth right after that. And, and I was so grateful because I was, by that point, I think I was a little bit more ready to get back on campus. And so Ah, yeah. So 18 years later here, a day in the life <laughs> looks like, um, gosh, do you want the, the beat by beat of, yeah, of give, the day? Give us, yeah. Yeah. Give us a typical day. Cause I imagine it's like <laughs> okay, college typical... students don't live on like a normal nine to five schedule. Right. <laughs> right. But, but okay. Here's the crazy thing is when I first got to campus, I was kind of living like a college student. Like I would start meetings at 11 o'clock at night. Um, and, <laughs> and people tell me, they kept telling me, you know, you're going to get burned out. You know, you're going to, you're going to go old someday. You're not gonna be able to do this. I'm like, yeah, I know that day's going to come, but it's not here now. Well, I have to tell you it's here now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I get up about four o'clock every morning and uh, get up, go drive to the other side of town here and work out. Wave at the people leaving done. parties. <laughs> On your yeah, way to, oh, on your way no, to that's, the gym. That's no joke. That is no joke. Our ne <laughs> next door neighbors, last last year, we had a bunch of our students. Now, all, we have a whole row of houses here. And most of them are rented by our like Newman students, like our Catholic students on campus. And uh, so one, one morning I got up and I was driving away and I was like, wait, those lights are on. There's a bunch of people. What the heck? So I pulled into their driveway and ran out to the door and they're like, father, hey, do you want a beer or do you want a coffee? <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I, I was love like, that. <laughs> you guys are the best. I will take a rain check on both because I'm going to go work out now. But uh, so I get up pretty early. And then when I get back after working out right now, these days, I've been recording the catechism in a year. And so that's been the new project. So I get back from the workout, record an episode or two if I can. And then we have a holy hour uh, with our students, with our focus missionaries. And then right after that, it launches into, man, it's just that's when the day like just it goes takes off like a rocket ship it seems like and uh that it's 
trying to write back to people who've written, trying to call back people I need to call back. And that lasts until about, well, it depends. Sometimes it lasts until 11, sometimes it lasts until noon. And then I have just meetings the rest of the day, a lot of spiritual direction. And then we have mass. Then we have an evening event every evening. So some nights we have, you know, RCIA classes or Bible study. In those events every night, I'm thinking, when can I go to bed? When can I go to bed? When can I go to bed? So that is a really well, brief thumbnail sketch of what the day looks like. All right. Well, sorry for adding to your email load by pestering you to be on the, oh, on sorry, the podcast. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, now, we mentioned uh, Newman a couple of times. Uh, could you maybe just explain for maybe someone's never heard of what a Newman Center is? What, what, what's the idea behind that? So a Newman Center began back in the day where you have Catholic colleges that typically have a Catholic campus ministry because it's a Catholic college. But then you have state schools that didn't necessarily have a a place for Catholics to come or a place for Catholics to have some ministry done to them. So years ago, uh, people developed these things called Newman Centers based off of, inspired by John Henry Cardinal Newman. And so basically on state schools, we have the opportunity to uh, have campus ministry that is of a Catholic distinct, whatever. That's flavor, Catholic. flavor, yeah. <laughs> flavor, I was, gonna, I was trying to think of the word. I was like, what is flavor is the word? Um, identity. And um, yeah, so so when someone re- refers to a Newman Center, typically what they're referring to is the Catholic campus ministry on a public school campus. And what does that look like on a, on a public school campus? I mean, I know you've re- only been at a state school, but like in ta- traveling right. around a lot, like how does, I guess... Catholic ministry's relationship to the wider community differ in in that context? It's different in so many ways. Uh, It's almost like you get to do ministry in the world, I guess, for lack of a better uh, way to say it, because we don't actually here, we don't really have a church of our own. We have a Newman house, right? And then we've converted the two-car garage into a daily mass chapel. We have adoration all day and we have, we have, I don't know, 30 Bible studies that are happening all throughout the week. But for when it comes to Sunday Mass, we go onto the campus and we have a ballroom that they, they've let us use on Sunday mornings. And we set up tables and we, I'm sorry, we set up chairs, we set up the altar, um, all those kind of things. And, and so we basically get to have Mass on campus. So it, the benefit is we're, we're there. We're there in the same place that they have all the other events. The negative part is we don't have our own space really. And no, there are other, some other Newman centers that are phenomenal and they have like massive Newman center itself. And they have a great opportunity to do ministry out of their own chapel. And God willing, someday we're going to be able to do that. Um, but right now it's, it's really, it's really compelling. We have church without walls is how we kind of try to look at it and spin that. to look at the silver lining because, um, yeah, we're in and amongst people who, uh, are, 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 open to us, people who are indifferent and people who are hostile. And uh, it's really good to be in that place. I sometimes think about if I was in a parish, um, I wouldn't get all these opportunities that I get to interface or interact on a regular basis with people who don't like me <laughs> or with people who who don't like what I, you know, um, what we are as Catholics. And I and I think that's that's really helpful and really humbling to be in a place like this. Right, because in a parish, like, y- you drive to the parish because you're expecting to talk to the priest, and you are in Catholic mode. Yeah. And you're probably probably inclined favorably towards it, but 
it's totally to- got to be totally different on a public school campus. Yeah, so so I went to a, a public university, and we didn't have a Newman Center, but we had Cap- Catholic campus ministries that I was involved with. And I think one of the tensions for us was, you know, you want to create this really strong community, an oasis within the larger university setting for Catholics who who want to be there. But you also want to have some sort of outreach to those who, as you said, are yeah. disinterested or even hostile. So how do you how do you strike that balance, and and what what efforts do you um, make to to reach those kind of on the margins. We realized over the course of years that we can never control how people respond to us. They, we never control how people can respond to our invitation. Um, but what we can do is we can keep inviting. <laughs> and so what we try to do when we're on campus is we try to have events that, of course, they're events that are specifically Catholic. So for example, Sunday mass, that's, that's a pretty Catholic thing to do. (laughs) Um, we have, you know, as I said, daily adoration, that's a pretty Catholic thing to do, but we also try to have, you know, speakers and presentations that don't just appeal to someone who already is sold, already bought in, but here's a compelling, um, presentation of relationships, you know, and on a topic from a Catholic perspective, but even if you don't believe in God, you're going to get something out of this because this is very practical as well. And so we try to do those kinds of events where um, we're just proposing and just proposing. Um, one of the things I love that we do is we, uh, are, you, are you guys familiar with Alpha? Vaguely, like the parish small group ministry or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so what it is, it you know, came out of uh, the Anglican church in in London and there's a, a Anglican priest named uh, Nicky Gumbel. And at one point he was assigned to a parish in downtown London. And he quickly realized that uh, he, he was irrelevant and what he was offering was irrelevant to the people there. I mean, that, that they considered his, what he was offering as, as a Christian irrelevant. And so he said, well, how do we, how do we bridge that gap? And so he started having these things called alpha where you have a meal, a shared meal, you have a presentation on some aspect of the Christian faith, kind of a mere Christianity kind of a thing, and then table discussion. So, and that's grown for years and years. And so we we have been using that model for years now. And so almost every year at my table, I have atheists at, almost every year at my table, I have people who, yeah, they're just like, well, here's my problem with my issue with and fill in the blank. And mm-hmm. like, this is good. And because what we invite our students to do and myself to do is, yeah, we're just here to talk about it and discuss. I'm not here to argue. I'm not here to um, convince you of anything because again, the presentation was where we tell you what we believe, and now we just want to hear what you believe. And I found that to be so fruitful. Do you think that young people coming in right now are default skeptical? Or like, what are the issues that they're really grappling with spiritually? Yeah, I can't tell you how many students who, before they were introduced to like even just our Newman community or our Catholic campus ministry community, um, were even kind of afraid not just not just skeptical or cynical, but we're we're afraid. Like, well, will they will they just you know judge me? But if, what if I'm not Christian? Like, oh, you really actually genuinely think this? There was a book called Unchristian that came out a bunch of years ago, and it was they took a look at um, what do non Christians think about Christians? Because I know what Christians think about Christians. We think that oh yeah, what are the words that define us? Well, grace and mercy and and joy, these kind of things. And they said, okay, what are the words that non Christians associate with Christians? And they were words like bigot and hypocritical and elitist and judgmental. And it was like, okay, if that is how people are approaching, they don't even have to be cynical or skeptical that I I would be afraid to, I would be hesitant. Um, And I find that that sometimes is the case. Yeah. But where's, where's that coming from? It doesn't come out of thin air that they, I think it comes for a lot of people from a real place of hurt. They, They feel like things they've heard from Catholic leaders have sort of 
put them on the outside and maybe uh, discounted their their experience. So how do you how do you try to you know bridge that divide that that comes from real pain? My experience has been that it has been hearsay, not immediate experience. When it comes to our here's our college students now, people who are a little bit older that might be the case, and or or people who have actually experienced the the real like you know abuse or or mistreatment in the church that which is real of course, but I would say that the vast majority of those students that I encounter haven't again this is just unlimited haven't personally experienced uh, Catholics being bigoted or prejudicial or elitist but it's been a a stereotype for lack of a better term. And again, that's not everybody, obviously, but uh, that's what I've found. Yeah, I guess we, uh, oftentimes where we get people um, is like sort of on, well, our, I would say a lot of our audience was super invested in campus ministry, got dropped in a new city, um, have a hard time. And then like, I don't know, maybe like summer of 2018 happens and it's the abuse crisis. Or, you know, they're watching the country get super polarized and they're watching the Catholics they follow on social media also get super polarized. And so like, they'll have this idea of what like the church is or what the U.S. bishops are. Um, but they might not, I mean, maybe to your point, like they don't know their bishop necessarily or their parish priest anymore. And so the, like, it's almost become like the brand of U.S. Catholicism is really what's turning them off. Um, and part of that it is, is our own doing. True, but it's, I mean, brands kind of take on a life of their own for sure. Right. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I wouldn't argue that. I wouldn't argue with that at all. Yeah. No, so the ones that, so the ones that maybe are, are open, they have maybe one foot in, one foot out. Uh, they're coming to the Newman Center, but but they're not fully committed yet. What are what are their big questions that they're they're coming to you with? What are they grappling with in their spiritual life? Well, it's as varied as individuals are. That there is a certain kind of cultural things where there are some of the the big questions that that people who are I don't want to say kind of on the outside or like you said one foot in one foot out that um, they're wrestling with. And those are typically where does the church stand outside of the culture, or where does the church stand opposed to the culture? Uh, where the culture might be going, and those are the, some of the areas, obviously, that that people like say, "How do I understand this? How do make how do I make sense of this?" And I mean, you don't have to be a you know rocket surgeon to know that uh, a lot of those questions surround the area of sexual morality. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, that, that, that and that simultaneously is like, okay, that makes sense, you know, because well, a couple reasons: one, uh, we all are sexual beings. And so that's part of being human. Secondly, um, it's a very important part of being human. Uh, thirdly, I would just say, gosh, there, in so many ways, for those who have encountered the Lord, it could become an ancillary question. But for those who have not yet, it's of paramount importance. Mm-hmm. And that's not meant to say, and I, when I say that, I know that sounds very, could be sound, could sound condescending to those who have those questions. Like, you haven't really encountered the Lord yet. I don't mean that. The church is, teaching on sexual morality is no more contrary to human nature than any of its other teachings on any other kind of morality. It's, but it is contrary to the, our culture's uh, way of looking at human beings and sex and relationships. Now, there are a number of like approaches that people are kind of taking to, uh, I don't know, relaying some of these controversial teachings. And you, 
Pope Francis has said, like, look, we don't need to always be talking about them, not to hide from them. But we, we could, there's all, as you said, there's a number of other Christian teachings that are sort of, that are very countercultural. Other people think we need to kind of just like double down or like re-explain it again or, but, but maybe on a new medium or, and some people like really want to stay in the church and try to, I don't know, people say like change it or develop it or whatever. How do you strike that as a public figure? Like, um, both as, I mean, both as a public figure on campus, but also, in your podcasting ministry? There are principles and there are policies. And I keep going, but coming back to that, coming back to, um, like, and I think you even mentioned, like here, Catholic figures weighing in on social media or weighing in on various um, platforms about their, their thoughts. Typically their thoughts would be on policies um, as opposed to on principles. And I want to always be conscientious of the fact that my idea of a policy is going to be simply my opinion. And my opinion is worth very, very little. But when it comes to a principle, like that's going to be worth a lot because it's not just my opinion. This is this is the truth. So as an example, and I, I use this example in, a, in an interview I did a couple weeks ago, but when it comes to Catholic social teaching, there's the paradox of Catholic social teaching, which is on the one hand, we believe in the universal destination of goods, which means there... <laughs> All the resources of the world are meant to provide for the needs of all the people throughout the world. So the universal destination of goods. That is balanced. Well, it's, it looks like it's contradicted by it, but it's not. It's a paradox with the right to private property. And so I'm not going to come in and say, here's my opinion on how the policy of these two principles should, should be in effect. Because I'm not, I don't know that. And I think something is similar when it comes to, here's where the church should go. I'm like, okay, well, you might be smart enough to figure that out. Um, I'm not, what I can do is I can look at the person in front of me and I can treat them like a human being. I want to pivot a little bit to the Bible in a year podcast. Um, Catholics are notoriously ignorant. That's sort of like the joke I would say, even amongst ourselves. So, you know, we got a mask. We don't have to read it. I'm going to be honest. Like I've never had the urge to read the whole thing front, front to back. Um, I look at how big the, particularly the old Testament is. And I just go, I will probably absorb that if I go to enough masses, right? Um, right. It, w- am I wrong? Should I really be trying to like get the whole thing? A- Ashley's read it. Yeah. Well, I had to cover. for school. So. <laughs> yeah, okay. But am, am I wrong in that approach? Or it's, I mean, it seems like a lot of people want to do the whole thing, which is, speaks to the success of the podcast. Right. So here's what I would say. I'm going to quote maybe a person that you've heard before and maybe a quote that you've heard before. Um, St. Jerome. <laughs> You might know what I'm just going to say. Said ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. So when someone says, uh, I'm Catholic, I don't need to know the Bible. What they might be saying, if it's true, I'm Catholic, I don't need to know Jesus. Is that what you're saying, Zach? Mm-hmm. <laughs> not what I'm trying to. <laughs> <laughs> Which, <laughs> no, exactly. And that's why I'm saying like, I know you're not, wouldn't be saying that because, because why? Because we also, I mean, there are, there are people, there are saints who weren't literate, right? There are saints who they showed up mm-hmm. for mass and they had, the word proclaimed to them. They're saying too, like, why do we have, you know, stained glass windows? Not just because it's beautiful and because it's art, because it's telling a story. We meditate on the mysteries of the rosary because, yeah, just by meditating on these 15, now 20, uh, scenes in Jesus's life, yeah, sanctity. You can grow in holiness, right? You can grow in grace, faith, hope, and love. So, <laughs> so in answer, people who's, someone who's illiterate, yes, 100% can still become a great saint um, without reading the Bible themselves straight through from, front to back, 
the question I would ponder aloud would be, is there a part of any of our hearts that just says, but I want to know what's in there. Like, I, I want to know what's been entrusted to me as a child of the father. Because what, what does Dave Abram say about, about scripture? It says that the father condescends to us and speaks to us as to his children. And there's something about that that would say like, okay, this is, belongs to my dad and he wants me to have it. So if I have a hesitancy about that, well, wh- where does that hesitancy come from? Well, I guess I am literate, so I should probably <laughs> try to look into it a well, little more. You can more. also listen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, so speaking of listening, one one thing that kind of took me by surprise, but maybe shouldn't have, was that your podcast comes with a a parental discretion advised little note um, because of <laughs> and and it's like you don't really think of the Bible as explicit content, but then you you know you go through the stories and you're like, well. Yeah. <laughs> this is a little bit like Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that came out of that came out of lived experience. That came out of uh that came out of um reading and posting and having <laughs> uh parents write in and call in saying, um, you should have given us a heads up uh, before you <laughs> read about these scenes. And like, oh yeah, we probably should have. That's one of the things about about the Bible and that takes it took so many people the first year we did it, it took so many people by surprise was how many people uh, were, were saying, wait a second, there is so much brokenness. There is so much darkness. Like I think, and I keep coming back to this image, I think people kept expecting to hear the Hallmark version mm. of the Bible. Is that even, that even like, I mean, think about, we can even kind of Hallmarkify the story of Noah and the flood. Where it's like, you forget about all the people who died and like, yeah, but there's this boat with all the animals on it and there's a rainbow at the end. And I have a Fisher-Price toy set of, yeah. of Noah and right, all the animals. Right. What, do, what do you say to Pretty people where, where it's like a real stumbling block for them? They look at the Old Testament and they're like, this is not the God I thought I met in the Gospels. Yeah. And I don't know if I want to I want to affiliate with that. Well, because like human brokenness is one thing. And that I can but definitely God really being wrathful yeah. and killing people is harder. Yeah, it's, it, that's a great question because um, was one of the things we recognize is that the God of the Hebrew scriptures and Christian scriptures is the same God. Mm-hmm. And that, that as God, he is fully good. So I love the fact that even in Genesis, here's this first book of the Bible. After the first 11 chapters, you have the story of Abraham. And what's one of the first stories in the saga of Abraham being called from his homeland to go to the promised land? One of the first stories is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Here's Abraham standing outside this city and God says, I'm going to go down and I'm going to destroy it because it's just the wickedness. People, the cries of the people in that city have come to me, reach my ears. So here's God out of justice is I'm going to do something about this. And what does Abraham say? But God, what if there's 50 righteous people there? And he has to ask this question because he doesn't know who God is yet. You know the story. Abraham gets him all the way down to God saying, no, if there's even 10 righteous people, I will not destroy it for the sake of those 10. So in that moment, from the very first part of the Bible, one of the things God is establishing is, you need to know this about me. I'm good and I'm just. And I am not going to destroy someone or I can destroy this city if there if there's a possibility of it not being the just and right thing to do. And I think that's really important. I think... Yeah, that's a that's a big piece of what we need to understand. Did the process maybe the first time you went through this go anything surprise you or stick out to you about your relationship to scripture or or maybe any passages? I learned a lot. Uh, that was great. That was you know I I really like what you said earlier about the fact that you can get a lot of the Bible just by going to mass. I mean that's that's one of the 
greatest gifts is, is how many times people who did the Bible in a year who are like, oh, I know this already. Oh, I knew this already. I just didn't know, didn't know the context for it. So that's so good. I thought that the hardest part to get through was going to be uh, like Leviticus. Mm. Maybe some of those kind of numbers, Leviticus, that kind of area mm-hmm. where it's going to be dry and kind of uh, just going through some rules. And it was far more challenging, but also more rewarding to get through the prophets. The prophets is this massive section. Yeah. And I'm like, well, they're all, they all sound like they're saying the same thing. Like what the heck? But in this case, for me, I had to not just read it out loud. I had to also explain it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I better understand it. If I'm going to explain this, I better understand this. And so there was a lot of study that went into getting ready, especially for the prophets, because again, they go on for chapter upon chapter. And uh, it's like, you, you ended up saying kind of the same thing you said at the beginning. So how is it different? And how is it important that it's different. And so that, that was a real big surprise. And I, I loved it. It was, again, it was challenging, but it was, um, I got a lot, a lot out of the prophets in a way that I hadn't anticipated. What about Jesus? I'm, I'm imagining you probably spent more time sitting with the gospels in your own formation. Right. Like, but what did this approach change your relationship with him at all? Yeah, that's a really great question because that's what it's all about, right? It's not just about, I read the book it's about, okay, did that reading of the word gets you closer to him, the word, right? Mm-hmm. To, to Jesus himself. You know, three quarters of the year are spent in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. But but I found myself for three quarters of the year reading something, even like something in Leviticus, which again, oh, it's dry, it's so boring, whatever. But then going into mass and being, oh my gosh, this is that. Mm-hmm. There were so many connections between here is what God commanded in Leviticus and here's what we do at every single mass. And it just blew my mind. In fact, I remember we had a bishop be ordained here in my diocese uh, during the middle of, of reading. And this man came up to me and he said, hey, he, that was incredible. After the ordination, he said, he said, all I kept thinking about was that's in the Bible. That's in the Bible. Like all the things, this right of the ordination of the bishop. And I was like, yeah, this is incredible. So that's one of the ways I just, I found Jesus more and more present in the Old Testament. And then it pointed to, here's an example. Gosh, coming into mass, I can, you know, it just go to mass every day or offer mass every day. There's a temptation to, um, yeah, I know the moves, you know, yeah. like, and I know this is important and I, I know, yep, here's consecration, really big deal. But then there are some, some, what in my mind had become like side things, just like here, here's this move you do over here. Here's like, you know, when you put on, even putting on the vestments, but then you go back to in the Old Testament, no, the vestments were very important. This was absolutely crucial. You'd be purified and then you'd put on the priestly garments and then you'd go into the temple. And then I was like, oh my gosh, Lord, I need to be constantly aware that not just the, the big moment is a big moment, but even these other moments are moments you've been preparing for thousands of years for me to be here and just uh, prepare my own heart for mass. So, so that, that's, that's, and it was just in, because of that, it was like, Jesus, you're here already. I don't, Yes, you're here in the Eucharist, but you're here already mm. as I'm doing this. That was that was really powerful for me. Okay, I want to switch gears uh, again. I mentioned earlier that you know this your your podcast has been massively successful, uh, but even before that, you you have YouTube videos that rack up millions of views, hundreds of thousands of views. Last week, 
uh, we're talking in September, we, we spoke with Caitlin Beatty. She's she's coming from an evangelical tradition, but she has a book about kind of the dangers of the of celebrity pastors. And so yeah. as as someone, with you know, a little bit of celebrity yourself, I'm wondering, um, you know, what are some of the temptations you're facing and how do you how do you deal with that in, in your day to day life? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, it's, it's really funny that, uh, so it, <laughs> on day-to-day life, there is no celebrity whatsoever. Like there is just, <laughs> it's just I'm on campus. I mean, in some ways I wish there were, because that might mean it'd be easier to, you know, bring more students <laughs> to get in the encounter to the Lord. Um, I will have, you know, occasionally there'll be students who will show up and say, oh yeah, we had to watch your videos in religious ed, or my mom loves you. I get that one a lot. My mom my loves mom. you. Like, okay, thank <laughs> Like, thank you very much. You should come to church. Um, <laughs> but 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 one of the things I remember it was I I was working a youth conference uh, a bunch of years ago, and Twitter had just come into my life, and so I don't know how long it had existed, but it just I had it. And as I was flying away, um, I, I tweeted something out like, you know, hey, thank you, youth conference, blah 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 blah. It was great, and fly away, and I land and I get back up to Duluth, and one of a former student. Uh, had had her phone. And she says, "What's this?" She held up her phone to the, the tweet. I was like, I, "I'm like, ah, uh, I don't know. It's a it's a tweet." You know, she said, "No, no, no. This is how celebrities tweet. You're a priest. You're not a celebrity. You don't tweet like this." And I was like, "Yeah, you're right. You're completely right. I am. That's how people who I don't know. I don't want to say want to have a voice. So people who that's not how maybe other pre, other priests might. But I was really convicted at that moment. Like, no, that's not me." That's, that is not uh, where I live. Where I live is right here with these students who are right in front of me. It's like someone goes away and does something, whatever that thing is, that might be important in the eyes of people or the world. And then they come home and their kids don't care at all about what they've been doing. All they care about is, are you here for me? And uh, that, that's where I live. So I get to do things like this, which is awesome, and talk to really interesting people. But... Literally right after this, I will head down, finish vacuuming uh, the basement for students to show up, hear confessions, uh, offer mass, and then uh, and then just try to be as present to our students tonight as possible. You know, it's funny because especially during the pandemic, I feel like I've heard from a lot of people, my own like in-laws, like really they kind of globbed onto you as like a pastor for them when they couldn't, they didn't have access to their, you know, their local parish and now that people are coming back to mass, if you're not like uh, people have become sort of virtual parishioners at places, they might, e- even if they're going to their, you know, the church in their town, they might be getting like a second homily or they might stream mass somewhere else. Do you think that's maybe a, a good thing, a dangerous thing for the church as, as we move further away from the pandemic? When I had, I had a conversion around 15, 16 years old, and where 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 Jesus was, yeah, I heard about him. Church, yeah, God heard about, I knew about that because I had to go to Catholic elementary school. I had to go to mass every Sunday. But then there was a moment where like, oh no, like this is real, this is true. I didn't have anywhere I could turn to get, like, how, how do I grow? Like I my, my parents are, are wonderful people and uh, you know they're the ones who brought us to mass. And so they had faith, but I wasn't gonna ask them like, mom, how do I pray the rosary? You know, or whatever the thing is, or I have a question about, <laughs> X, Y, or Z, I'm not going to ask them just because that's my disposition. Uh, and I didn't have a youth pastor, youth minister. Again, the difference between huh, a celebrity pastor or celebrity priest and one I can trust. Um, 
because that's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And and when we find someone that, to some degree at least, that we can trust, um, like I, I know that for the most part they're not going to lead me astray. Um, but I I I needed personally, I needed formation. I want really who well, I wanted it. I didn't have anyone in my hometown who was offering, or I could felt like I could ask. So I think sometimes you know here's. Back in the day, it was tapes. Here's some tapes. Um, now it's, here's a podcast that uh, maybe I can get, maybe I personally can offer through a quick little video or through, you know, the the other homily that they're going to hear that day on Sunday. Um, something that maybe will help them take the next step in their relationship with the Lord. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm hoping. It's interesting because it's, it's such a double-edged sword too, because a lot of people would say like um, e- either, you know, YouTube algorithm, you're you're always like maybe like 10 clicks away from like being radicalized into something terrible um, just based right. on its algorithm. And so like the internet's both this like resource for, you know, like maybe your 15, 16 year old self, but also a lot of teenagers fall into really dark rabbit holes there. And then I think maybe other people, I, I think I agree with you typically about people need to have access to to these types of things. But some people would say like, you can't have formation without you know, proximity relationship, yeah. relationship. Yeah. And, and, and relationships yeah. can't be one way. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent. I, I, I would say that in the absence of those real, rel- because I mean, that's, that's the, detri- the detriment too, is I could even say this. I could say, looking at myself and say, well, yeah, I read those books and I listened to some tapes and I got information that was really, really good. Um, but I wasn't ever taught in that age, at least. Well, here's how you're vulnerable with someone in a really healthy way. Here's here's what it looks like when someone disciples you in in a really good way. Um, I had to cobble it together and kind of figure it out as I was going. But yeah, so the, I would say kind of like how you know a lot of times we say that the church doesn't need another program, doesn't need another you know DVD set, doesn't need another whatever, and it's true. Um, because there's something more important. Uh, at the same time, uh, here I am in a small town in northern Minnesota, and I don't have anyone who can really teach confirmation these this these some of these really difficult topics in a really compelling way but we do have this dvd here we do have this streaming thing and so maybe there's a combination i don't know it's just it's kind of just a whole mess that uh, i think that yeah uh, <laughs> as long as we don't rely too heavily upon that crutch is someone yeah. who makes podcasts the, the you know I, i'm happy you gave yeah, that he's answer talking too. to himself yeah yeah, well. yeah no. <laughs> it's the case for more content i'm yeah. really into so that's yeah. fine with me right. but right. but in the vein of you know needing both the you know local community and 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 podcasts we will let you get to vacuuming and your students <laughs> after after one <laughs> final you. question that we ask all of our guests uh which is if you could canonize one person catholic or not living or dead fictional or real who would it be and why there's a girl named Mallory Norell, who just shy of 16 years old, uh, passed away from cancer a couple of years ago. And her last year of her life, she witnessed to the Lord and trust in God so powerfully. She, um, she had come to our camps um, that we put on for junior high students with her, her sister. And they, they have a, a, more siblings too, who are awesome. But she and her sister came back from camp and, and every day they would, they would do, try to do their like, Lexio Divina. We taught them, you know, and they'd pick out a rose and a thorn and she wrote in her journal, you know, these, and even when she was diagnosed with cancer, even that day, uh, she wrote in her journal, like, you know, this day was hard and my, my thorn was being diagnosed with cancer. My rose, maybe that was my rose too. And 
She says, spending time with Jesus in the Eucharist after being diagnosed. Um, yeah, and I remember even the days leading up, the weeks leading up to her death. Um, she was like, listen, I just, I'm gonna pray uh, for healing. The God, the God, the God uh, heals me and gives me life. But if he doesn't, I just want him to be known. I just want him to be glorified. So if he, if he heals me and he's glorified, that's awesome. And if he doesn't heal me and I die, then that's awesome. That's for his glory. And so for Mal, that would be, if I could canonize anybody, I think it'd be Mal. Same Mal. Th th Mike, thank you so much for yeah. uh, witnessing to Mallory's life and to sharing your ministry with us. You can find Father Mike at where you're listening to this, the Bible in Year podcast. And you've got one coming up, right? A new podcast, that is. Yeah, yeah. We have the Catechism in a Year starting in a couple months, so January 1st. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yesterday, there was sun and there was rain. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? I want to point people again to America's new groundbreaking documentary, People of God, How Catholic Parish Life is Changing in the United States. Yeah, we talked about this last week. It was produced by our own producer, Sebastian Gomes, and it's an incredible look at what Catholic life looks like on the ground. They went to four different cities uh, across the United States and really displayed the diversity of the church here. And we particularly want to bring it up here because we're actually going to be talking about some of the questions that the documentary brings up on this show. We're either going to do it uh, in Signs of the Times coming up in the next couple weeks, or I don't know, these might be like good enough to sort of like breathe on their own. We might oh, drop them in. They're definitely going to be good enough. Yeah, they, <laughs> to, to, breathe, to, to require a little more breathing room. So we might drop them in the main feed. Haven't decided that yet, but we're bringing on Sebastian and our colleague, Father Jim McDermott, to you know, discuss some of these thorny issues that it gets into. For example, what do you do when parishes are clustering or closing? How do we face the reality that there just, frankly, aren't that many more priests in the United States and there's going to be a lot less? Uh, what is the role of live streaming mass or having a digital parish after COVID? These are questions that all Catholics, you know, should be thinking about and have an opinion about. So, you know, these conversations will stand alone, but you'll probably enjoy them much more if you've seen the film. And you can only do that if you subscribe to America Magazine.
And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And this week we have part three of our catechesis on discernment from Pope Francis. Each week he's been at his Wednesday general audience giving a different a gift, a talk on the theme of discernment. And so far we've talked about the importance of desire in discerning and of self-knowledge. And this week we're going to talk about what Pope Francis calls knowing the story of your life. Yeah, I kind of found this as sort of like the continuation of self-knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. like knowing the, it's not just knowing the like the the chapter that is your day, but really the whole novel yeah. <laughs> of your entire life. And he talks about these as like uh, ingredients or prerequisites to a, a good discernment, um, which I think is a helpful way to frame this. To just to quickly summarize what, what Pope Francis said is that, you know, it's really important when you're discerning to have the general view of your life, the ups, the downs, the like big moments, the small moments, because oftentimes we're just kind of like looking at the the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, or the thing that just happened. We have a lot of recency bias that we deal with in our in our spiritual lives. And so having, you know, the larger context of where has God been with me in my life? Where did I feel most consoled? Where was I in the most desolation is going to put things into a wider perspective for you. Yeah, I really appreciated looking at discernment as like a narrative process. I just a couple of weeks ago, I was invited to give give a talk on the very broad theme of like vocation <laughs> and I'm like, you know, like, what's your faith? How did you get here? What's your faith journey? And I was just like, that sounds overwhelming. I <laughs> Whereas for me, like I was a youth group kid. So yeah. like, getting up and giving your witness was a, yeah. a more of a regular thing for me. But yeah. I know that was not your. No. So faith, just a faith journey felt like such a nebulous thing. But then when I started thinking about it through the idea of just like storytelling, like how would I tell the story of my life? Like what were the major turning points that brought me to where I am here today? I, I found it to be a really moving process for me and an eye-opening to the ways that God was working even when I didn't realize it. Just like I thought about how <laughs> uh, when I was in high school, I loved the Colbert Report, the Stephen Colbert show. I'm like I don't, I don't really like think of that as like a huge faith moment. But there was part of me who really – like loved seeing the Catholic faith portrayed on TV in such like a normal and, and fun way. And so that was a real desire, desire I had that pointed me there. And that's where I learned about Father James Martin and followed him on Facebook. And then he posted America's job opening. And so I'm just like, wow. And now you're making a show where you're trying to portray <laughs> yeah. Catholicism in a yeah. normal and non-weird way exactly. in media. Yeah. <laughs> There is also there's a line uh, that he mentions that one great way to do this is couples doing pre-cana. Is this something you had to do? With yeah, I, 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 Francis asks us, have we ever we should ask ourselves, have I ever recounted my life to anyone? Um, and he met, he specifically mentions, you know, engaged couples doing this with one another. And, you know, during our engagement kind of retreat, this is definitely something we did. Um, and it is like a really moving thing to do, especially because like, uh, you know, it's your spouse is someone you know pretty well, but like actually taking the time to like we're going to spend some time looking backwards at you know things you might have been there for but we haven't really looked at in a larger context um so that like married couples or engaged couples is uh what he says is like a good example and i was also thinking like this is something that happens a little bit organically um people wouldn't necessarily call it like discernment but i was thinking like that freshman year of college where everyone's like brand new and getting to know each other and it's like late night in the dorm and you're all just like trying to talk about stuff and get to know one another like this is sort of like a natural thing that 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 happens but then we don't really give ourselves like as many chances to do that uh later in life and so 
you know, Francis, I think, is right here to encourage us to look for opportunities, whether it's, you know, giving a talk to yeah. a group of people or uh, sharing. I mean, we don't really do that here, right? It, it'd be a long, long segment <laughs> of As One Friend Speaks to Another if we did life <laughs> stories every week. But I still think it's worth doing. Even if you're not in a point in your life where you're comfortable maybe opening up and having those conversations, I do think it could be a really um, helpful practice just to, like, write it down sometimes, just journal, like, tell not not your whole life story, but a life story, and and see see where God was working there. All right, and I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com/groups/jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Judge Whitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.